Hi, Phil. Hi, Mike. How's it going? You know, it's going. I'm feeling. I'm feeling a little hungry. Like I might yep. want to. Like I might want to eat the rich. Oh, why? Why would you feel like that, Phil? Why would I want to eat the rich? Well, so the episode. <laughs> hello, dear listeners. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a special series that we had imagined and then only recorded one episode of. Um, but it was a doozy and it was gorgeous. Mike, can you talk a little bit about what the series was supposed to be? So the spinoff of The Chef's Monologue was going to be called The Chef's Test Kitchen. And mm. we would invite amazing writers uh, to to feed us, uh, feed our hungry little ears uh-huh. with amazing morsels of food-themed thoughts and uh, areas that they were experts in. So we yeah. actually have a feast for your ears with Skylar Tarnas, who came into the studio and blew our minds with his uh, various uh, insights and just amazing uh, deconstructions of a trio of movies that came out in 2022. Um, the Menu, Triangle of Sadness, and... Glass onion, <laughs> glass onion two. No, sorry, knives out two. Glass, glass onion, glass, glass onion, onion two. two. This time, this it's time glassier. with more onions. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, this time, this time is personal. The yeah. So we were thinking that the chef's test kitchen would be like a craft conversation. It's the place that we would invite. I think originally it was like alumni of the podcast mm. and Skylar, who's a brilliant writer also acted in Maddie's, which if you're listening in order, I think this episode is being released after we release Maddie's. So you will have already heard Skylar's brilliant acting and I don't get to hear his brilliant film criticism. He is a professor. He is a brilliant writer. And he just like the way he talks about these three movies is so amazing. And I mean, the hilarity of this is that we recorded it during last year's Oscar season when it was like relevant and then we never did anything with it. (laughs) So we encourage you, dear listeners, if you haven't already to watch these three movies and then listen to this episode or just listen to the episode and enjoy and soak up Skylar's brilliance. But there is much in the, the whole episode is just these three movies, Triangle of Sadness, The Menu and Knives Out 2, Glass Onion. There's a lot of spoilers in this one, so if you haven't seen them, probably watch it before, I would say. And otherwise, enjoy. Otherwise, enjoy. Hello, and welcome to The Chef's Test Kitchen. That's right, listeners. Today, we are cooking up something very special for you. This is the chef's monologue you know and love, but... You are listening to the inaugural episode of The Chef's Test Kitchen, a new series where we chat with fabulous writers about cooking-related film and TV. Our very first special guest is Skylar Tarnas. Skylar, welcome to The Chef's Test Kitchen. Hello. Thank you guys so much for having me. (laughs) Uh, Skylar, what is on the menu for us today? Well, it's so funny you ask, Mike, because uh, <laughs> the menu is just what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> Yummy. We are uh, talking about a trio of Eat the Rich ensemble movies from this past year of 2022, a glorious year. No. 
Um, Glass Onion, directed by Ryan Johnson. The Menu, written by Seth Rice and Will Tracy, directed by Mark Mylod. And Triangle of Sadness, written and directed by Ruben Ostland. And these are all delicious Eat the Rich movies. These are absolutely Eat the Rich movies and kind of an evolution of a different trio of Eat the Rich movies that I Mm -hmm. am very much a fan of from 2019. So I'm very interested in how the form has evolved and how we're using this kind of uh, isolation ensemble movie to tell these stories in very different ways. Mm. Oh, awesome. So before we kind of get into the specifics of each movie, can we talk about this as a category? It seems like a, a newer phenomenon within the last two years. Why do you think that this is maybe cropped up um, as, as sort of a, a phenomenon? Well, I both agree and disagree that it's a phenomenon. I think in, in 2019, um, Knives Out is sort of the movie I'd been waiting for as just someone who grew up reading Agatha Christie and has been trying to read everything she wrote for the past year. Um, Ryan Johnson is also a big Agatha Christie nerd, and it was a very, like, lighthearted fluffy mystery movie with um some class consciousness to it that i really enjoyed that year we also got ready or not uh by matt bettinelli open and tyler gillett who are now in charge of the scream franchise um so that's fun good for them and ready or not is also a very fun class-based movie in which a bride is hunted down on her wedding night by her fiance's wealthy family Mm -hmm. whose wealth (laughs) essentially manifests itself by satanism that year of course we also got best picture winner parasite by bong joon ho and i was delighted to find that all three of these movies are ensemble casts um using a lot of beautiful character actors and all have to do with some form of class consciousness, and also all take place in big mansions and had murder. So it became kind of a trio of, <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> of, trio of movies that I was showing to students to use as kind of a jumping off point to uh, compare and contrast the way these films used relatively similar forms for very different political messages, I think. And this year we've gotten, if that was the mansion trio, this year has been very interestingly enough, the island trio Oh, with all three of these films taking place at least partially on a boat and partially stranded on an <laughs> island. And I just think that's weird. Isn't that weird? Wait, can I just say, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I have watched, obviously, all of them for this podcast, and I'm only just <laughs> now live realizing that they all take place on an island. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, that's why I'm grouping them together. Oh, and and giving, been... of course, giving, of course, uh, uh, truth to the phrase that no movie is an island. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. I'm going to leave now. Thank you. Yes, you're done. I mean, the we can cut that, that one. The original, the reason that the original trio appealed to me so much, I think, partially, is that at least two Knives Out and Ready or Not had a lot of inspiration clearly from the ensemble picture clue from 1985 oh, a favorite yes. of all the girls and gays yes <laughs> and also you know an ensemble film where i think developed a lot of my taste for what i love in film which is just when you let these great actors just bounce off of each other in these moments where um it's not even necessarily the script doing the talking. I've gone back and read, for instance, the Glass Onion script 
And these actors like Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Kate Hudson, brought so much to their characters because when you throw a bunch of lovely character actors on an island and let them improvise off of each other, I think you get something really special. Mm-hmm. That's such an important element of all of these movies. And the movie you mentioned, the three movies you mentioned before as well. It's like you get, mm-hmm. there is a certain zaniness to it that makes it palatable. Not only palatable, but it's why it's fun. Yeah. And then you think, of course, of Clue and you're like, oh, Madeline Kahn, flames on the side of flames. my face. Yes. Um, <laughs> Tim Curry. Um, oh, what's the name? Leslie Ann Warren doing It's yes. My Defense Mechanism. Oh. Um, like that. I mean, I wonder, I think Clue at the time knew it was camp. And I think the menu was, I mean, it was the spoof of Chef's Table, right? Like you get all those like, way, close-ups yeah, of the sure. food and stuff. And it, 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 but it's also doing a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. And I was interested to see these three movies fall into kind of similar three categories as the previous three. Glass Onion, it's no re- real surprise that it's um, similar to Knives Out in mm-hmm. its approach. Uh, the menu is quite similar, I think, to Ready or Not in having this very, like, um, campy, irreverent slasher energy to it. Mm. Mm-hmm. While Triangle of Sadness, like Parasite, was a Best Picture contender, also the mm-hmm. uh, only one of these films that was not made in uh, America or mm. not made by uh, an American uh, writer-director. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That is funny. That's an amazing parallel, for sure. And has, I think, for better or for worse, some more layered things to say about class. Mm -hmm. So you you keep saying that these are ensemble-based movies, Mm -hmm. and I'm interested because I think that's right, obviously. Um, But they're also, I think, still many subscribe to a single protagonist that we project onto. Is that is that a is that a tension within these the, I, and, and yeah, is that tension within these these movies? I think when I say ensemble cast, I mean less that there's not a protagonist and more that these films would not exist without a group. And mm-hmm. so Glass Onion has the disruptors, um, Claire, Lionel, Birdie, Peg, Duke, Whiskey, this group of shitheads who arrive on this island and have their own like interplay as our protagonists uh, try to figure out the mystery amongst them. You can't do a mystery film without an ensemble, so it's not surprising that this contains one. Oh, wait, mm-hmm. say more to that. You can't do a mystery film without an ensemble? Well, sure, you need suspects, don't you? Oh, <laughs> and it would behoove you as a writer. I'm jumping the gun here. We're going to ask you about how to write movies like this, mm-hmm. but um, it would behoove you as a writer to create the most ridiculous and absurd ensemble you possibly can. I think in a movie where you need a big ensemble um, and a mystery is something where I think you absolutely need a selection of potential suspects. I think uh, Ryan Johnson's played with this form a couple of times now in an interesting way that I think we'll get back into. But, um, you know, it's necessary that these characters are all different from each other. But in the messaging of these films, it's interesting because while they are all superficially different, they all have the exact same goals, which is oh. kind of the same deal that I think Knives Out was making in which the, um, wow, I've forgotten the name of the family in Knives Out, the Thrombies. 
where the thrombies, thrombies. the thrombies are all politically divided, loathe each other, <laughs> um, have different uh, have different politics, have different values. But when it comes down to it, I think a big part of the movie's class messaging is that they all stick together to protect their money. Yes, exemplified the most powerfully for me by the daughter towards the end of the mm-hmm. movie, who's like the hippie liberal college daughter, right? Who who's <laughs> whose allyship to a working class woman of color only goes as far as I won't lose my money. Yes. Like I like you do your thing girl, but I need my money, mm-hmm. which is such a huge, powerful moment in that film. Um, and it's also, I mean, I think we see a little bit of that in the menu when obviously spoilers, Nicholas Holt's character, mm. it's revealed that he knew that Anya Taylor joy was going to die. Right. And it's like, Oh, the one person, I mean, at that point in the movie, we don't trust him. He's already showed himself to be a huge dick, but you don't, it's like, oh, the one person that was connected to the protagonist, who is Mm -hmm. usually an outsider, always shows themselves to be just as bad, if not worse. And now that I'm saying that, ready or not, the husband is like, I'm going to kill you. The um, menu, there's Nicholas Holt. And then also something about the menu and ready or not is that it's both like, beautiful lower income woman with higher Mm -hmm. status quote unquote of course higher status man and we see the film through their eyes because they are the outsider and we too Mm -hmm. theoretically are the outsider is that something you always have to have in a mystery movie like an outsider i think not necessarily the detective often serves as the outsider i Mm. think the detective's an interesting role in a mystery movie and i think people are noting it with the Knives Out movies that uh, the detective is a kind of archetypal character that wanders in and out of these stories. Mm. And so, yes, we do have, we've had an outsider in two of the Knives Out movies. We've had uh, Ana Darmas as um, Marta, the uh, caretaker for the dead man in Knives Out. And then we've had uh, Helen Brand, Janelle Monet's Helen Brand, who's interestingly posing as an insider who's still an outsider. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that Knives Out, Ready or Not, and Parasite, while also being these big mansion movies, are also inherently about family. And a lot of their wealth commentary has to do with family. So true. The family sticks together. Um, Glass Onion, The Menu, and Triangle of Sadness are less about family. And instead, these ensembles are not um, family, but friends collaborators co-workers and are still united in this way in glass onion the disruptors are united not by a college style friendship though that is certainly displayed by the fact that they are all how janelle Monáe puts it hanging on to the billionaire's golden titties right <laughs> when they said it the first time i was like oh that's sort of a hackneyed metaphor and then they said it a bunch more times yeah. and every single <laughs> time i know that i was like oh, this is, it, gets, it gets funnier whereas in the menu there the menu in tri- and triangle of sadness we are united by trying to survive right mm-hmm. and the money trying to survive too absolutely that's Ooh, okay, wait, interesting. So in the first, in the mansion trio, you get the family must survive Mm -hmm. because the family is what consolidates the wealth. Yes. And then the island trio, Triangle of Sadness, Menu, Glass Onion, there's no family unit to protect, but the money is still strong enough that everyone who 
wants the money is going to fight for it there's and a, will kill for it. Yeah. There's an interesting thing that I think these three movies have touched on, which I think is very smart at this point in our political history, which is how much do we pretend like everything is okay when everything is going to shit? Mm. This isn't a new thing. It's been a horror movie since the dawn of time. Speaking of Agatha Christie, it's a big feature in um, my favorite of her books. And then there were none, the OG slasher book. Mm. And it's certainly <laughs> featured here. In, uh, in Glass Onion, I think less so, but still, when our first murder occurs, immediately uh, Catherine Hans Claire is up there being like, no, don't call the police. This will ruin my career. It's like, right. someone is hunting you, honey. Honey. <laughs> honey, mama. In the You're going to die. In the menu, even as it's clear that the chefs and the chef and his minions are going to be murdering everyone in the dining room, there is a long-kept pretension, particularly by uh, the food critic Lillian Bloom, played delightfully by Janet McTeer. I love her, like, jacket in this movie. (laughs) Keeps insisting that, no, this is theater. This is theater. And, spoiler alert, none of them ever really try to fight back, which I think is very interesting. In trying to live sadness, sadness, the boat is sinking. Everyone is throwing up. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. But the crew is still going along, insisting that everyone eat more seafood. Would you like a mint? (laughs) Oh, that part was uniquely disturbing. (laughs) Yes, wasn't it? (laughs) Oh God! And then even a ginger candy. Yeah. (laughs) Oh goodness. (laughs) So yes, there is this. I think it's very of the moment. Even as I think that a lot of this stuff is not necessarily of the moment, I think there is something very interesting about how these three films have a very particular let's act like the boat isn't sinking. Oh my God. Okay. Going on. All right. So we've identified a couple of craft pieces that are useful here. Ensemble. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one ensemble filled with zany suspects Two, an outsider, either an Ana de Armas type or a detective Mm -hmm. or both or both. (laughs) Pourquoi pas le deux? Um, What was the second? I had a whole third thing and I forgot it. Um, it was ensemble. Just that, just that sort of this, they, in this newest trio, is that what you're talking about? That they have to, that it seems to be an important part that the in group continues to, um, yeah, they, they continue to um, right. keep the fantasy alive that, that this is normal mm-hmm. and nothing is wrong and, and everything is, is, you know. Right. Yeah. Even if all the suspects haven't done their own thing, they all have a vested interest in no one finding out what the thing is. Mm-hmm. And so then that goes to the third thing. I remember it now. It was maintaining the status quo. If <laughs> yes. you're one of the suspects, yes. like you want to, yeah. if you're Catherine Hahn, it's like, I'm sorry, someone's dead, but I just want to be governor mm-hmm. or Senate. I'm on, I'm on the Senate. Yep. Yeah. And she then, is and then, a governor running for Senate. Right. Just for facts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember hearing that at the beginning like governor running for senate and i was like is that i feel like that's a demotion isn't it no no I, I, i'm acting as though i know right yeah which one of us knows about this let's be honest but in so in agatha christie's and then there were none one of the more like famous original slasher books it's um, a murder mystery, a classic in which everyone is trapped on the island and they are being killed one by one. A criticism that that book received at the time is that even as they're being hunted and killed, clearly by a serial killer that must be hidden amongst them, the butler continues chopping wood for everyone. Um, they continue decorum when they're strip searching each other. The one woman remaining surviving in the party, she strips down to a bathing suit while they search her. 
mm. while they search her lodgings. And a lot of the criticism at the time was, no, we would not still hang to social roles as things are going to shit. And yet, <laughs> while I think there's plenty you can criticize Agatha Christie on, I think she's actually pretty dead on there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so it was interesting interesting to see that theme recurring here. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about COVID. Mm-hmm. We were all like, everything's changing. The world is new. Nature is healing. We are the virus. And it's like, we didn't we didn't change anything. It's not true. We didn't change any not, nothing. But it's like, you we know, we were still we were still at home. Like, who's doing a home workout? Uh-huh. And and who is writing their King Lear was a big thing that was going around. The writing world was like, okay, we have all this time. Like oh, God. Shakespeare wrote King Lear in the, during the bubonic plagues. Like, who's going to write their King Lear? And we didn't. We treated it like a vacation, mm-hmm. like a stressful vacation and not like a global pandemic. Yeah. And I, I mentioned the ship sinking in Triangle of Sadness, but I think it's also important that the social roles, the falling away of the social roles is very, I think, interestingly done when Abigail, the cleaner, arrives on the island. Her boss, Paula, who I think is the the head steward on the ship, I'm not mm, sure, but she's immediately like, her. Abigail, you are the toilet cleaner. You will do what I want you to do. And it <laughs> takes a while for it to sink in for her. Oh, it doesn't matter anymore that I'm yep. your boss. Yep. I loved that. Mm-hmm. I... And that, okay, here's another thing, craft-wise. That character is like a psychopath. Or it's Paula like sh- or Abigail? <laughs> well, both in their own ways. But Paula... <gasps> what? Of- no, what? you take Paula's name out your mouth. Uh, take Abigail's name out your mouth. <laughs> no, I love Abigail. I really, we all love Abigail. I really like... I. Yeah, we love Abigail. Um, the part where she gets... Like, where she boyfriends... Wifes up Carl yes. and continues <laughs> to wife him up is so difficult to watch not because of their coupling but because of the context of their coupling mm-hmm. like they're just on this island and yaya is there and yaya and carl are both such terrible people yes. in their own ways the movie begins with them trying to have a conversation about splitting a check that almost ends their relationship because <laughs> they're both kind of manipulative shitty and talk around an issue rather than talking about the issue and they're so manipulative <laughs> both of them mm-hmm. um Okay, so another craft thing to think about is, here I go again, forgetting it. What we were just talking about, Abigail, oh, oh, here, I remember what it was. Paula in Triangle of Sadness. You could argue, if you were critiquing the movie, that like, oh, if we were on a desert island, like, she wouldn't care about that. She'd be in survival mode that's an unrealistic character Mm -hmm. who is so tied to their job and status that even if they were the head steward, they would still think about that on a desert Island. And it's like, no, that's what makes her a Mm -hmm. fantastic character is that she's irrational. She's selfish. She's uh, the, the fact that she wants Abigail to continue doing her cleaning work Mm -hmm. is on a desert Island after a pirate attack on their ship is ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And it could be read as a one dimensional character, but it actually feels closer to life. A la, Agatha Christie, Absolutely. and then there were none. Our character traits don't fall away when we're in stressful situations. I mean, isn't that what we love to do as writers is push characters to their absolute brink? And that, mm-hmm. I think, is a lot of the joy of these movies. We get to know these characters in their mostly shitty selves, and we get to see how they react as the world falls down around them. Mm. 
and we want to give people the benefit of the doubt as writers. You know, we like people, everyone's human and I love all my characters, even the ones <laughs> who are horrible people, but it's like, you can't then give them a pass in your script and your story will be more interesting mm-hmm. if they continue to be shitheads. Yes. Mm-hmm. Golden um, teat suckers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the like. What, uh, what other, if speak, you know, speaking from a craft perspective, what other commonalities um, in terms of plot Mm-hmm. Uh, or plot structure that these movies need to uh, address if they're sort of, it seems like the goal, it, it seems, I think it's safe to say it's maybe hard to assume or, or talk about a, a piece of art's intention, but it seems like these pieces, it's, it's clear in, the, in both three of these movies that they're attempting to depict or satirize or um, otherwise explore the what class or what the economic system that we all operate in does to us in, as individuals. Yeah, something I think is distinct about this trio of movies as compared to the previous one. In Knives Out, Ready or Not, in Parasite, our protagonists are all poor, and the people hurting them or endangering them are either the rich or people that only exist because of the rich, in the very interesting case of Parasite, Mm. where um, it's not necessarily that the rich family is attacking the Kims, but the insulation of the uh the park family's wealth has created these monsters that are attacking the kims in this trio of films at least as to how it seems at first it's the rich that are in danger and our protagonists are in danger right alongside them glass Mm -hmm. onion subverts this in an interesting way because while it seems as though miles braun is in danger i think one of the cleverer things about the film is that no, the disruptors were never in danger as long as they did not go against the billionaire. Oh. Mm-hmm. It tricks us into believing that, yes, the rich are the ones who are being eaten here. In fact, the rich are, of course, the ones eating. <laughs> <laughs> they ate, left no crumbs. <laughs> they did. I mean, it's Catherine Hahn, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it is Catherine Hahn. And let us take a minute. Let us take a moment of silence. <laughs> not silence, of reverence for... <laughs> And Kate Hudson, and, who I can't oh believe I have Oh my god, that fucking, that iridescent mm. rainbow dress. Oh my gosh. She mm. looked like she was on RuPaul's Drag Race yeah. in one of the finales. <laughs> like she, that dress was so absurd was and so silly. No, there was no was reason so- why it had to be iridescent. And there was no reason why it had to be rainbow. Mm. And it was both. Yes. <laughs> and she's so, she's so funny in it. It's honestly one of my absolute favorite Kate Hudson roles. I think she is so funny and weird and daffy in this part in a part that could only really exist in a weird ensemble knives out movie right so but in terms of commonalities i think it's also interesting to note that all three of these movies feature sex work as a plot point oh. and have very different attitudes towards it knives say out. more glass onion has sex work in it oh yes that's everything whiskey is doing yeah <laughs> oh so yeah so the character of whiskey who's brought along by uh men's rights oh. activist uh duke Cody, <laughs> by Dave <Bochiska. laughs> i'm so sorry this is this is the point this is the this is the point in the podcast where we break and do our um ad ad break for rhino horn erectile dysfunction <laughs> pills right, yeah or like those or i don't know why they're giving these ads to me of all people 
but I am getting the like better help like for men ads. Like, get, it, literally, <laughs> it literally says like get it off your hairy chest, and it's like oh no, for men. And I'm like, I'm like that's actually the opposite of the point. Of <laughs> if you have to go to therapy for men, actually, no, okay, I'm not gonna judge people who I anyway. <laughs> However, you get therapy, therapy too. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. However, you get to therapy is the right way to get to therapy. But I just think it's so funny that there that there are like ads. It's so it's it's funny and it's disturbing. And um, anyway, yeah. Enter code Chef's Monologue for fifteen percent off at Better Help. <laughs> <laughs> Do not enter that code; it will give you nothing. <laughs> so okay. Um, so when I tell you that all three of these films feature sex work, I think it would not be unreasonable to be like oh it must be in kind of a we're all whores for the rich type thing but that's not really what any of these are doing uh whiskey is working on behalf of her boyfriend to uh sleep with miles braun the inherent the billionaire of the island who everyone's trying to get on his good side uh in order to further her boyfriend's career and her career She's not particularly happy doing it, and it's shown as uh, a reason why Duke, her boyfriend, sucks. But um, it doesn't really belittle her as a character aspect. It actually kind of shows her, when we learn that about her as a character, we stop seeing her as kind of a dumb, like, uh, a dumb anti-feminist poser, and we start seeing her as a kind of clever political operator in and of herself. Mm. In Triangle of Sadness, Abigail exploits Carl for sexual favors. It's one of the ways that we see her position at the top of the totem pole corrupting her. And we know from the beginning that this is something that's always going to happen to people like Carl. The movie opens with someone joking around with male models about how they're going to have to sleep with people for jobs. And it's clearly Mm -hmm. not very funny to them. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Oh, and it's so clearly laid out when... when Abigail and Carl are sleeping together and then Carl is able to like distribute goods to other Mm -hmm. people. So it ends up like truly being like payment or a good or a service. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And it's most Uh, integrated into the menu with which I feel like I have a lot to say about the way that the movie talks about um, sex work that I almost feel like is a conversation in and of itself. Um, But what were you going to say, Mike? Oh, I just say I I love you because you feed me fish. Um, (laughs) So I was going to (laughs) say. Which I now say to my wife. (laughs) And it's something that I believe your cat is saying next to you right now. Yes, yes. Um, You can't see uh, listeners, but my cat has gotten up on the chair where I'm recording and is very interested in discussion of fish. So, Mm -hmm. Yes, you heard about Uh, fish. I mean, it's part of what makes the Triangle of Sadness uh, situation almost more primal. The fact that he says, I love you because you feed me fish. It's turning things like love into something instinctual and something no longer so much emotionally driven or rather the emotions are created by their survival situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, it's worth, so I, I do definitely want to dive deep into the, into these movies. Um, mm-hmm. But um, just to say again, and, and flag again at the start of triangle of sadness, when at the end of the night uh, in the part one between Yaya and uh, Charlie, they sort of have this big fight and they kind of come back and and she he he says to her or you know she kind of explains what what actually this the, in, in very frank terms what the situation mm-hmm. is she says i'm a model there's only one way out of this life honey she says more or less uh, misquoting but um and then he sort of says actually let's not do that i'm gonna make you love me you know there's sort of this it, yeah. it's in this crazy kind of 
um, way. They're, they're very blunt with each other about what in the third part of the movie um, becomes very real in, in a way it becomes a little bit intellectual in the first, by the end, it's like very apparent. It's like, Oh, mm-hmm. we, we are here to transit. We are, we are uh, undergoing a transaction and there's no um, emotion. I mean, of course there's emotion because we're humans, but really we're here for survival and relying on each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated. So, so uh, when you say you have thoughts about the depiction of sex work in the menu, so is that, do you think that it succeeds or, or this is a cr- critique or, or, I actually am very pro the menu in a way that I don't think a lot of people are. I think it's I think it's I think it's hard to talk about these three movies without mentioning the fact that there is a rumble of dissent towards all of these. I think you can sense even though all three of these movies were pretty critically acclaimed, were are pretty well liked by audiences. I think you can sense in the think pieces, in the tweets that at least the lefty cultural atmosphere is getting a little sick of these mm. or at least is feeling mm. an inherent hypocrisy in um hollywood making movies about rich people being bad and mm. i think there's a lot to talk about in and of that whether you know i think we'll get into satire and what makes for successful satire but um the menu i think has been unfairly flattened with these other films and I will tell you why. <laughs> Please, oh my God, go. So the menu is about art, right? It's not subtle in being about art. And I feel like I see that ignored a lot when people kind of dismiss it as being like, it's baffling that they make this about like foodie culture. Like it's not really about foodie culture and it's not really about food. It is in and of it's a perfect metaphor for art. But the menu is about art, uh, the auteur, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. Art, the auteur, and the corrupting influence of money and status on art. And I think it's no real coincidence that this movie is written by some TV writers. Uh So we have Chef Slowick, uh, played by Ray Fiennes. Um, So good. Ralph? Ralph? Whatever. I can't keep repeating words that I don't know how to pronounce. (laughs) We'll be here all day. (laughs) (laughs) So Ray Fiennes uh, is Chef Slowick. He is the beloved chef. Um, under the uh, because of the the reviews, the glowing reviews of Lillian Bloom, he has risen to this incredible peak where he only serves the richest of people who can afford his like cultivated island experience. It's eight, eighteen hundred dollars a, a plate or something, yeah, right? Something so obscene. Right. And the people that Slowick chooses to punish, there is of course the critic and i think the the shallowest part of the film is it being like you the critic have made restaurants close the more Hmm. interesting part of that character i think is the fact that because of the reviews she gave him he rose in status to the point where he was no longer serving the people he started cooking for oh Hmm. and so the other people targeted of course are the finance people who have kept him in business the um, wealthy people who have no appreciation for his food, even though they're the only ones who can afford it. And most interesting, I think, the slathering yeah. <laughs> fanboy. Yes. It is not hard, I think, to see this as a metaphor for creating film and creating TV. Hmm. I mean, the chefs... My jaw is dropping, listeners. This is so good. Keep going. The chefs function as a writer's room. When we learn later about how they've created this uh, murder plan, we learn that they've been pitching things 
uh, Catherine, yeah. one of the, yeah. the minor chefs, <laughs> uh, drops everyone's jaw when she reveals they're trying to get her to help them out. She's like, oh, actually, everyone dying was my pitch. I'm really proud of it. <laughs> oh, my God. Part of what Slowick also wants to destroy, and one of the reasons the movie is pretty damn bleak, is that the chefs do not exempt themselves from destruction. It's mm-hmm. not a film, and I think it would be a less smart film if it was, it's not a film in which the chefs kill all of their customers. It is a film in which the chefs decide all of this is tainted and has to be destroyed, including the auteur. Because in becoming an auteur, Slowick has become miserable. The people under him have become miserable, knowing they will never become him. Hence, uh, the chef, Jeremy, who ends up shooting himself is one of the courses. Yeah. The other chefs are slavishly devoted to him. Uh, Hong Chao's Elsa is delightful in the part as his uh these are tortillas yes (laughs) are tortillas deliciosas (laughs) and he has also sexually harassed one of his employees oh yes that part was so i ray finds his character going full like enlightenment like i have Mm -hmm. to kill everything after being who in a lesser movie would just be like a bad dude Mm -hmm. because he is on paper the character is just a bad dude but the fact that he like becomes he can't cure himself of his bad dudeness and then he just becomes enlightened to the point where he's like and now i must die like in order to fix the problem that i am both that i am victim to and also co-creating like i have to be dead Mm -hmm. and that sort of like can i can i lodge yeah, can I lodge a, a gentle critique against the Please. the menu? That that one point is that such a beautiful moment when they're outside and it's men's folly and it's like um, she she stabs him in the thigh and I I, I pause the movie and yelled at my screen and I was like stab him in the dick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Mike, I'm not. I, I don't think you're wrong. I do think it would have been hard for him to function for the rest of the evening, but I felt it too. <gasps> I, felt <laughs> I think we all felt in true Victoria justice fashion. I think we all felt like he wanted to get stabbed in the day. Yeah. But I mean, how does this not make sense to us as theater people, right? This being about the inaccessibility of art, that the art that you wanted to make for people just like you is now going to this private Island where only the most wealthy can see it. People who also cannot appreciate it. Uh, yeah, Richard and sure. Lee Branch who cannot remember any of the dishes they have eaten. Right. And then, of course, you do well, have your fans. You have people like Tyler, Nicholas Holtz, Tyler, the sort of person who was probably demanding a Snyder cut, um, if oh that God. was his <laughs> fandom of choice. Oh, <laughs> that person that is... is held in even more contempt than everyone else. That is so the spot uncritical on, fanboy. Oh my God! So that's why so, I think the menu is a lot smarter than people give it credit for. Well, and there's there's the one the one character group that you haven't talked about is the actual only people who are literally in film, right? That's um, ah yes, John John Leguizamo and Amy Carrero as Felicity. So so that's a fascinating character because um, I think for me the um, that's the most kind of on the nose um, uh, jab at yes. I think your theory, which is totally right. Where it's like you you, you know John Leguizamo, your character. I don't think he's ever named. I think he's just the movie star. I think at one point um, they call him George Diaz, but it's not clear if that's his false name or his real name. Oh right, but but you know his his character basically phoned in this terrible movie, yes. and the chef went on his only day off and saw it, and so he deserves to die. Which I think is right. so it's so um, silly in the context uh, of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. And it's just like so um, glorious, yeah. In the context of the movie, um, and then it was funny. So his assistant, in a way, yeah. they, they sort of she she's kind of um, 
I, it's like she maybe stole money from him and yeah. then it's like sort of <laughs> in, in this like great back and forth about like I, <laughs> I stole money from you i know i gave you a bad uh recommendation to your new job i know you cc'd me on it there's yes. so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and then yeah there's that, that one moment where she's like well why do i decide and he's like did you go to college and then the student loans joke which i thought was like mm-hmm. i don't know it didn't work for me in a funny way i was like it just seems so um I start, I, you know, I get it, obviously, but it felt like a Twitter joke almost. Um, yeah, but that's it's a, a personal Twitter preference joke for sure. And these are pretty online movies. Uh, and yeah, I understand. I understand why that aspect of it wouldn't work for people. My sister, I was very interested that generally you'll find someone who likes at least one of the three, but another mm-hmm. two of the three won't work for them. And I'm always very uh-huh. interested as to why that is. My sister. Uh-huh loathed glass onion which i had (laughs) which is fine which is of course fine um she thought kate hudson was bad in it which i think is silly but well there are some opinions that are wrong there are some opinions that are wrong (laughs) but she and her boyfriend loved the menu which i thought was very interesting because i thought they were similar levels of online movies but maybe not i think glass onion is pretty like pretty on the nose in all of its caricatures whereas I, mm. maybe the menu is a little more slanted in its caricatures but i don't think a lot more so but um what did you just say oh yes felicity and uh the movie star um i mean yeah so yeah the movie star for sure is the artist that's given up the artist that's allowed himself to make substandard fare well felicity i think is more of a joke character but also I think it's notable that she's leaving him to go into content creation, uh. which she also clearly has no idea what it is. When when told to describe it, she's like, I'll be, you know, it's content creation. So I'll be creating content or something like that. <laughs> right. So uh, yes, in being uh, this rich person in arts, she is also upholding the same system, even though I didn't want her to die. <laughs> <laughs> And something else, the movie, the menu, which I loved does. I think I loved it because I came in knowing that it was going to be silly mm-hmm. and, a, and a joke. That's the best way to go into it. And I think the menu is an example of like bad in real life, bad marketing. Like it wasn't mm. presented to the world in the way that communicated that it mm. was hilarious. Mm-hmm. And if you went in expecting a really scary slasher mm-hmm. with like true suspense, you weren't going to get it. Right. It's supposed to be, you're supposed to laugh. Mm-hmm. All the chef's table jokes are like the, the, the courses being described, like they're on a Netflix show, like is supposed to make you yes. laugh. It's so what funny. Are the, it's so funny. Tyler's bullshit or whatever. Tyler's bullshit was so funny. And then s'mores at the end where it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like graham cracker, chocolate, marshmallows, guests, chefs, everyone. Yes. So <laughs> smart. And the other things that the menu did really well. And I'm a, I'm just like such a, I'm such a genre glutton. Like I loved the Anya Taylor-Joy versus Hong Chao fight scene. Mm-hmm. Um, a la obsessed with Ali Larder and Beyonce. Like just like <laughs> two powerful women absolutely trying to kill each other, mm-hmm. I think is such an incredible genre moment. Our friend Abby Brooke has a screenplay that is called Serve Yourself. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I guess I can't give spoilers for a movie she's in the middle of making. But oh. needless to say... I love her movie because it's full of delicious Mm -hmm. genre things as well. And um, you also have 
the like moment at the end of the film and it's in ready or not and it's in the menu where it's like the working class girl has survived yes. and she's outside of the thing watching it burn yes. and Anya mm-hmm. Taylor Joy's eating her cheeseburger which is also such a great <laughs> moment yes. and so it really embraced <laughs> while being an incredible piece of satire about art making told vis-a-vis food boutique food it was also just like a really fun horror movie yes. and i think we've got to talk about Margot. uh whose real name I believe is Aaron uh, and the sex work in this movie, because Mm -hmm. one of the, I don't know if you would call it a twist. It's not too far into the movie when we find out, but we learned that Margot, the woman we've been following uh, Tyler's date is uh, in fact, a sex worker that he's hired. And she's in fact already worked for one of the other patrons who Mm there is some weird little backstory implanted in there where it seems like the older couple had a daughter that died and he asked her to role play as the daughter Mm -hmm. it's some fucked up stuff going on there yeah while he while he masturbates and she stares into his eyes and she tells him like you're a good person (laughs) really really i think that's really well written yeah stuff because that's terrifying Mm -hmm. it gives you shivers you're like that's gross yeah and yeah oh hey no kink shaming come on well but she Yes, Mike, I'm sorry. <laughs> so she, as a sex worker, is put by Chef Slowick on the same level as the other artists. She is a provider of services. And she, like Slowick, has become disillusioned with her craft. She used to enjoy making people happy. She doesn't anymore. She gets people like Tyler and people like um, mm. Richard. And her arc in this film, while Slowick has lost all joy of his craft, she regains some of hers. Because what she does in the end of this movie, really, in oh, just hell a yeah. fucking great moment. I love she like imitates his little clap, gets the attention of everyone in the restaurant, and roasts all of his like overly pretentious food mm. for filth before telling him that she doesn't even think he can make a cheeseburger. Right. And that was the key <laughs> to leave all along. Like that was a secret passcode. Because she makes him rediscover what he loved about cooking in the first right. place. Making something oh, that's delicious brilliant. and accessible. While yep. she gets to leave as an artist who has succeeded again in their art. Wow. Wow. That's a brilliant take. Um, I'm genuinely like reeling over how much depth you have brought to us about the menu specifically. I'm like, oh, is this movie one of the best movies ever made? Like, (laughs) Well, it's really, it is the one that I feel I think most called to defend just because I do think there's a lot in there that gets flattened by calling it, um, an eat the rich movie when I think there is a lot more to it that's inextricable from money but is not a flat uninteresting message wow and it's actually it's sort of funny you paired them together and you almost you like secretly did that thing and then you flipped that thing it's like <laughs> it's like we're gonna look, talk about three eat the rich movies and surprise one of them has a lot of secret depth to it the one that might seem on its surface the most shallow shallow mm-hmm. right but I do think, I think each of these movies is doing something pretty interesting mm-hmm. that uh, when I see people complain that like, oh, it's just eat the rich movies and they have nothing to say besides like, we have to eat the rich. And I do always think like, if you don't like one of these, you'll like one of the others because they span pretty <laughs> different political bents. Right. And so when I saw some, someone complaining about, I think it must've been about Glass Onion saying that, like, I don't know why Eat the Rich movies always have to end with, like, we don't even eat the rich. We just, like, humiliate them or whatever. I'm like, oh, you could watch some of these other movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they're all about different things, right? Glass Onion is about the the figure of the tech billionaire, the seemingly 
immovable tech billionaire. It just so happened that this movie came out just at the time when Elon Musk had bought Twitter. And a, <laughs> uh, it was a very well-timed film, I think, in terms of we got the art discourse about destroying paintings. We got the Elon Musk billionaire discourse. But it's not just about a movie about the rich being bad. It's about this figure, the tech billionaire, is propped up by his cronies, people like politicians and cultural figures who are all beholden to him. And he can't be destroyed until they are removed. Mm. Wow. Whereas Triangle of Sadness, I think, um, like Parasite before it, has a take that's less the rich are bad and more this system makes us all horrible. We are all Mm -hmm. craving proximity to power and we all will abuse it. Mm. And we all live in fear of being without it. Yeah. There's something that's like that the, in in both of these trios that the only foreign film or movie made outside of the kind of quote unquote Hollywood system Mm -hmm. is the, are the two that are the most pessimistic um, in the sense of like, or at least their critiques are the most broad in the Mm -hmm. sense of, you know, parasite. We are all, you know, even the, um, you know the family would murder the would you know basically yeah that yes. that we are all shitty and in um triangle of sadness yeah exactly that when when the chip when the um world is inverted uh we will you know the, those the least among us will sort of strive their hardest to become mm-hmm. the sort of the, the best so and do you think that's a um if if you're thinking about writing these movies mm-hmm. um that is a uh, tension in them or is that just because of the sort of um, w- way that they were made if that makes sense I think that it's almost it's almost impossible to really delve into the politics of what you are making I think if you want to tell a good story I think that you will automatically reflect what is going on mm-hmm. you know I think that Talking of of satire and what makes good satire, I am increasingly convinced that satire is just vibes, that what works for us (laughs) is going to work for us. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because, you know, you'll see people being like uh, Succession, for instance, which, interestingly, some of the the menu writers are writers on Succession. Oh, that makes sense. But it's not the same thing as the menu. It's certainly not doing the same thing. No. It just also involves rich people. And so you'll see people being like, succession is an immoral product um or or white lotus is an immoral product or you could you could say it really about any of these and i think something inherent to it is maybe the idea of whether or not you're allowed to feel triumph and is is triumph good politics bad art i don't know so in knives out and glass onion we get the we get the triumph of our main characters i do think glass onion I think the ending of Glass Onion was probably definitely made in response to some criticism of the original Knives Out in which Marta mm. wins because she is good and honest and plays by the rules. In Glass Onion, Helen Brand is only able to win, and this is where our detective excuses himself, by blowing up Edward Norton's house, destroying the Mona Lisa, and getting his friends to lie about him. Wow. Victory is won through lies and property destruction. But it's still a bloodless <laughs> triumph. Everyone survives right. that explosion. Except okay. Dave Batista. Yes. Who at that point is already R.I.P. R.I.P. Dave Batista. But but she didn't she wasn't the one who killed him, right? No. No, she no, Ed, she Ed she 
blood still stays right. off our protagonist's hands. Interesting, right. which is not true in Ready or Not or in Parasite or in the menu. True. Because she kills Hong Chao. Yes. In the menu, our protagonist has some blood on her hands, but is mostly escaping an extermination that happens without her. Right, of course. In Parasite and Triangle of Sadness, it's a much rougher game for our protagonists. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Kims are immoral people who do some really horrible things. And in the end, our survived members of the family have learned nothing. Triangle of Sadness, depending on... I'm, I'm not even really sure what characters we're always supposed to be following in Triangle of Sadness. Right. But Abigail, who... The movie simply refuses to let you have a Yas Queen. Uh, <laughs> no, it, oh, thank you for saying that. It's, it's so funny, but it's also so true that you can't... You don't walk out of that movie telling anybody to slay because everyone is right. horrible. And I mean, we love yeah. Abigail. Yeah. And my roommate wanted to add, um, <laughs> who, uh, my roommate is, uh, my roommate's mom is Filipino. And, uh, <laughs> was like, you know, representation matters, but I wish it didn't. <laughs> she, she was like, I love it. I can never oh watch it again. God. I cannot watch Abigail do those things again. <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah. That's uh huh. And, Okay, I'm interested in your... So we have... I would argue that Triangle of Sadness of these three is the most, in the truest sense, grotesque. Yes. As evidenced by the diarrhea, and the vomiting, and the sewage explosion, and... Um, Which is also a critique I've seen put on it, that it is confused politically because it makes you feel bad for the rich because of how grotesque their punishment is. Oh, interesting. So I'm So my question about grotesqueness and you just started to touch on it right Mm. there is what role do you think from a writing perspective like true um what's the noun form of grotesque grotesqueness grotesquity (laughs) how grotesquity (laughs) i made up a word what role do you think that grotesquity plays in (laughs) movies like this because because what a delicious question what a delicious question (laughs) because the menu isn't really that grotesque it's actually pretty clean it's pretty clean yeah it's like there's gore but it's almost it's like the cleanest gore they they one of the more like disturbing parts of the film is right at the end where all of the guests are consumed in fire and what we see is just their like chocolate crowns their weird little fucked up chocolate crowns right. running down into their eyes <laughs> which feels like a midsummer reference yes it at least feels like covering similar territory right and they're making the cleansing of, power of fire right it's like we're gonna roast ari aster here too mm. <laughs> and i love those movies but what was um and yeah in the menu when uh what's his name jonathan the sous chef yes she shoots himself they put on a tarp yes like they keep it clean yeah it's okay. a kitchen mm. it's a kitchen right it's they a can't, kitchen you can't have blood of course i'm so sorry the okay so back to the triangle of sadness thing what mm-hmm. role do you think grotesqueness plays you know, I think it's I think it's a genre thing. I think it depends what kind of film you're making, but it does feel mm-hmm. kind of unavoidable, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's. I don't really fault Glass Onion for not having everyone die in that explosion. That would be a very different kind of movie if right. that was the ending of the film. Um, Glass Onion's a popcorn film that was best seen in theaters, and I like it a lot. But I very much accept that um, in terms of staying power of art it's doing what i want it to do for me um i don't know that it has like a super long lasting power Uh um in terms of triangle of sadness 
I actually think I can answer this question best by talking about um, its predecessor. Um, there was this film swept away from 1974, an Italian film directed by uh, Lina Wertmüller, whose name I'm sure I got exactly right. And um, <laughs> I went ahead and watched this film because a critique I had seen of Triangle of Sadness was that everything interesting it had done was already done in the 70s by Swept Away. So in Swept Away, a communist sailor and a wealthy, almost fascistic woman are stranded on, stranded on an island. The movie at this point kind of turns into a um, really violent taming of the shrew in which he kind of beats her up a lot and oh. um, almost sexually assaults her before uh, deciding that, in fact, he wants her to offer herself to him. That's the biggest punishment he can give to her. Ooh. She does, and she falls madly in love with him. Oh. And um, he then falls madly in love with her. We go back to land to learn that she's uh, not actually going to leave her husband for him. And he's, in fact, already got a wife and kids who he was prepared to leave for her. But we learn some very unpleasant things about both of them throughout this whole film. And so while... I'm not, I'm still turning over the political implications of swept away in my head. I think that if you are going to tell a political allegory, as both of these films are, the grotesque is almost unavoidable. Mm. And I, I have seen the premise raised both ways, that these films are either not bloody enough towards the rich or too bloody towards the rich. Either it presents them as too much of caricatures, and so we cannot feel that it's real art, or they are too sympathetic, and thus it's politically confused because we shouldn't feel bad for the rich that we want to destroy, should we? Mm. My focus, I think, where I'll always fall in this, and I don't know that there is a right answer, it's hard to mix politics and art um, in a really mm. concrete way. Right. Um. Obviously, all art is inherently political, and I, I hope you understand what I mean by that. But um, I think where I fall in that we want to tell stories with character characters, mm -hmm. right? And so if your story makes you feel empathy for someone being murdered, fine. If we are getting towards the place where we are talking about revolution as a country which to be fair we've never been in a place where we weren't talking about revolution as a country we cannot pretend that revolution is a bloodless fun thing we should be reckoning with these things if we're going to talk about each eat the rich stories right like quite literally eating people or killing people mm -hmm. right like that's what these, these movies begin to get there and i don't suggest doing that in terms of there's a character archetype I feel that's been popping up a lot recently or a plot archetype rather where we'll have a character caught in between two extremes and we think they will fall down on the left side and um, the radical left group ends up like murdering some babies. So we no longer have to follow their, uh, their way of thinking. <laughs> right. And that's, that's pretty common, but right. my suggestion is not necessarily to remove the killing of babies, <laughs> but rather that this is something that has to be reckoned with. It should not right. be used as a reason to dismiss this group um, or this ideology, but should be something that your art is prepared to reckon with. Mm. 
Wow. Yeah, there's something, I mean, that just reminds me a little bit about like the critique against a lot of uh, the Marvel franchise, sure. uh, sort of uh, sympathetic villains. You know, you think right. of Killmonger and Black Panther as sort of the, the most prime recent example mm-hmm. where it's like these people make, I think, really um, su- successful, su- sustained critiques of the status quo. And of course, our intrepid heroes are the defenders of that. Mm-hmm. And so the only way that the m- movie can resolve that internal tension to have heroes defend a status quo that has been critiqued as unjust and you know uh, um horrible is to have the villain as you say go to extreme start killing babies or sort of you know lose sense of their mission and then thus we are justified as an audience in empathizing with their destruction right and in a way i don't fault necessarily the writers of these films for trying to create interesting villains you know anti-villains as it were who uh it's i mean it's it's almost an interesting way to get ideas through to an audience that would not otherwise be able to be exposed to them but i mean yeah i think we all know when you're working in a machine like the disney marvel machine you're not going to be able to be too radical Mm-hmm. I am surprised to see people apply that same logic to these films, assuming that because they are Hollywood films, they are not allowed, quote unquote, to be radical. I don't think anyone's holding these films back from giving the radical image of our dreams. Mm-hmm. I think that these are writers, for better or for worse, giving us where they stand politically. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, there's also something interesting that you kind of touched on where there's there's sort of a tension between writing a emotionally compelling story mm-hmm. um, with characters that go through transformation over the course of the plot um, and and then trying to not shoe in, but then trying to grapple with more intellectual uh, sociopolitical issues. Can you, do you, can you say more about that? If, if I'm sort of sitting down to write, you know, I want to write a movie that's going to uh, deconstruct capitalism in the way that these three haven't what what should i sort of look for and do I, what checklist i guess we sort of touched a little bit but what, what are some elements that or at least problems that i should think about well it's i feel like almost my answer is that you can't or that that is not an impulse that i think is necessarily going to lead to an interesting story i think something always has to come story first but that's mm-hmm. my perspective on it as a writer. I know we've we've all written things that have to do with um, <laughs> capitalism or uh, various like radical ethos, and I mean, Mike, you've written um, a few uh, a few like very um, very politically based plays. I know you're working on uh, your your Bakai remake right now, which I know is very uh, based in the idea of the radical politician. Um, how do you approach it? I mean, I think I think if I sort of look back over how I first started it, it you know, I struggled with that. I, I sort of was writing political essays dis- uh, disguised as you know, uh, you know, embodied by people on stage. And I think I think the the work suffered for that. So I think now, as I evolve in my own work, I'm trying to yeah. I think story comes first. In I think it's totally right. And, and in fact, I, I think we've all been in this situation where, especially in theater, but in other mediums as well, it's unique to theater that, you know, you sort of sit down, you plunk, you pay your 20 bucks and you plunk down in the seat and it becomes very apparent that you're being preached to that this um, person, this writer is like trying to hit you over the head with a message. And it becomes um, impossible for me to 
connect with the work any longer because I'm like, okay, I get it. I, you know, I'm, it feels like um, somebody trying to shove something down my throat and maybe it's the yeah. inherent anti-authoritarian person within me that I'm like, <laughs> I, I re- even if I agree with it, I, I reject it because yeah. I don't like that kind of lack of consent. Brechtian um, philosophy failed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think to a certain um, extent, we go also to content for really good villains, mm-hmm. and that's something that Disney does well, and I think Marvel does well sometimes. And what these movies could do really well too, especially with uh, Ray Fiennes' character, mm-hmm. is like you. The a good story is supposed to have someone we ex- we disagree with who thinks irrationally, mm-hmm. who who is powerful and horrible in ways that we would never be, or like that's meant to reflect something back to us. If every villain was exactly the villain that we imagined in the world, then every movie would be the same. Right. And it's like if you want the 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 task that becomes like, okay, who do you think is the villain in our world? Then you write the movie or the script where that person is the villain. And it would behoove you from an audience engagement perspective to make that person interesting, funny, yes. wacky, unpredictable. And so we're supposed to, from a storytelling perspective, like our villains a little bit. Mm-hmm. The rich people in these movies are supposed to be on some level sympathetic because if it started and they were like, fuck everyone, I'm rich, I'm rich, <laughs> money, money, that's all I am. It wouldn't be a fun movie to watch. And then you wouldn't learn anything because you turn it off 20 minutes in. So it's like these characters are supposed to be fun. It doesn't mean that the people who make the movie are like, and these are the people that I think should be running the world. It's like, no, they make them fun. So you like watching it so you can learn the lesson. I feel, yeah, it it absolutely has to be character first. And I think, I do not think there is a way, or if there is, I certainly haven't found it yet to write, um, you know, the politically perfect story amongst these three films, you know, in Glass Onion, our villain is the billionaire. In terms of, like, good politics, it's got all of the things that I think people critiquing these films have. It doesn't... We may get to watch Miles Braun suffer, but we certainly don't feel bad for him. Mm-hmm. All of mm-hmm. the disruptors and their ilk are portrayed as pretty despicable people, and in the end, we triumph over them. And yet, I think people are still pretty quick to call the film like smug and self-satisfied. Whereas something like the menu is lambasted for being politically incoherent. We're neither on the side of the chefs who want to blow everything up or the diners trying feebly to survive. Mm -hmm. Whereas triangle of sadness, I've seen people say, you know, this is a film that says, huh, capitalism's bad, but what else are we going to do? It's easy Mm. to flatten (laughs) any message you want to give. And so you have to focus on telling the best story you can with the most interesting characters you can. We have our own political philosophies. It is not possible to avoid them. They will come out no matter what. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's something, I think we should end pretty soon, but um, there's, I think there's something worthwhile in saying that as well. This this is in some senses, this, um, uh, it is a inherent uh, crisis or struggle within our genre, or particularly the yes. genre they're talking about, which is film, which is a time-based, which you have two hours, two and a half hours maximum. You can do three hours, but then you sort of start to lose. Um, and, and plays as well. You have sort of a limited time frame in which to, you know, as it, as we're talking about dismantle capitalism or, or sort of launch a sustained and, and successful political critique. And I, and I wonder if that that tension is, you know, you know, is maybe we're sort of putting our energy into the wrong place. So, you know, talking about this, I I sort of think about like, has there been any pieces of art that like have 
um, you know, opened my thinking and, and sort of accomplished a change in my political ideology? And I think, yes, the answer is I read a novel called The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a science fiction novel um, and it's sprawling. It's 800 pages. So it took me, whatever, two weeks, three weeks to read. So I had to digest it over a long period of time. But sort of inherent in that piece of art was a, a, a breadth and a, a sort of ability to um, explore the many ramifications of the systems that we operate in, in a way that I think we are unable to in such a, um, you know, small or, or relatively um, tight uh, parameters of, of film and television. Although I guess, you know, even saying that television, I think might be some kind of um, medium between a novel and a film. But of course, you're still limited by, um, you know, 45 minutes or an hour uh, each episode. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the lasting impression I want to leave is that we're often treating these films as some kind of new thing that speaks to where we are politically right now. And I'm skeptical of that. I think it's interesting that these films, that these two trios of films had very similar forms, took place in similar locations, and all relied on one of my favorite tropes, an ensemble cast. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that was planned. And I think ultimately we have always loved stories about rich people fucking around and also them then being fucked over. I thought of like the school for scandal uh, from 1777 by Richard Kingsley Sheridan from like my old theater history class, you know, Mm -hmm. these are still very much in the comedy of manners style. I mean, the the menu starts like a late stage pinter play with all of these people (laughs) sitting around the tables no longer having the words to talk about how they're dissatisfied in their relationships. Yep. Um, yep. One of my favorite books is The Count of Monte Cristo um, from 1844 uh, the, uh, by Alexandre Dumas, where our protagonist gets a lot of money, yes, but uses it to take vengeance on the old rich bastards who did him wrong. And it's chapters upon chapters upon chapters upon chapters of drawn out vengeance and what he finally does to one of the the men who betrayed him is have him kidnapped by uh, a band of uh, a band of bandits who he controls, who then charge him exorbitant amounts to eat anything oh. until he has lost <laughs> all of his money, which is very similar to what's done in 1974 is swept away, and also quite similar to what's done in Triangle of Sadness, where our rich folks are left to hawk their watches to abigail to just spend the night indoors oh my god the scene when they're tapping their watches on the door oh my god and then obviously again spoiler alert um at the end of triangle of sadness where they find the luxury resort and abigail is like gonna kill yaya r.i.p yaya rip yaya we did not get previous to talking about this Previous to recording the episode, Mike and Skyler were playing around with hard pivoting this to a defense of Yaya. Um, I'm <laughs> glad we didn't have time for that because I wouldn't have been able to um, stop you from going there. So I'm so glad we're at the end uh, and have managed to avoid the defense of Yaya episode of the Chef monologue. Um, back to what you were saying, hawking watches to spend a night inside. When they find the resort, it's like Abigail is like, we cannot become proximal to this wealth again or else I won't have any power. Exactly, And that's none of these are new things and they don't have to be Mm. that is all right we have always as artists as society been throwing the same few messages back and forth 
And yes, we can say that's a product of late stage capitalism, but these stories have always been there. Rich people have always been a good villain for horror because it's good to have a very unsympathetic villain for your horror films. Mm. Um, I think of Would You Rather from 2012, where it's a bunch of rich people um, making our protagonists bet on what horrible things they would do to themselves for some money. And uh, something I wanted to bring up was Les Liaisons Dangereuses um, from 1782, which was written shortly before the French Revolution and is a whole novel about French rich people destroying each other, being horrible, and ultimately dying of their own sins. The play version (laughs) ends with the last few remaining characters. I believe they're just like playing bridge and chilling out. And in the background, a shadow shows a guillotine falling. Sacre bleu. And that book slash play slash movie has been remade more times than I can count with Glenn Close Uh, and John Malkovich with uh, Sarah Michelle Geller. Yes, obviously. Yes. <laughs> we're now getting a new we're we're getting a new Cruel Intentions, I believe, and we're also now getting a new Liaison Dangereuse TV show. Like these oh. these stories will keep popping up over and over. Liaison Dangereuse. <laughs> well, there's I mean, there's something. Yeah, it's sort of you know, there's a, a film theorist named Richard Dyer who is obsessed with the musical, um, the American musical, and he talks about like the idea of films particularly uh, as being utopian mm. so in the sense of like in this and maybe in our conversation utopian in sort of like a you know we can for two hours imagine a society where rich people are punished where in our daily life they aren't um uh but but he he talks about it more like kind of as a, almost as entertainment so it's like in in our daily life i don't know if it's maybe different for you for you guys but like you know people don't just break out into song and coordinated dance numbers right mm. and that's like a really pleasurable um thing to imagine like what if life was you know what if this podcast suddenly we could just break out in harmony and you know and, and so there's sort of this entertainment don't and this escapism <laughs> <laughs> um this escapism right which is which is a sort of classic um both argument against the purpose of entertainment but really uh, i think a fundamental feature of like novels even going back you know to the dawn of history of of humans painting you know it's funny in triangle sadness when they start painting the um the uh what is it the donkey that they kill on the wall and they sort of have yes. this like who 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 did this this donkey um yeah i mean it's both this sort of it's a fundamental feature of art that like if if it presents a world that does not exist then sort of inherently that world has political implications absolutely i think the ultimate tension is maybe that we love to look at pretty things on screen we love to look at big mansions and gorgeous swimming pools and Kate Hudson and absolutely amazing like swim dress yes. thing with the frills. Yes. And Benoit Blanc's amazing uh, swimwear, obviously, oh, which we yes. haven't discussed. <laughs> but we also recognize that we don't like rich people and want to see them punished. And I think that's a very interesting tension, but in no way do I think it's a new tension. And we're also in that way punishing ourselves. Like you watch Last yeah. London and you're secretly like, this resort looks really nice. <laughs> I would like to spend some non-guilt time here, but I can't mm-hmm. want that because that makes me a bad person. Right. So now I will gleefully watch these rich people eat themselves because I wanted it and was too afraid mm-hmm. to say it. We blow it up. We have to blow it up. <laughs> to purge ourselves of the sin. Um, 
Skylar, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. This was such a joy. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I've been holding in talking about these movies forever. (laughs) And you finally got the chance. Okay, as we sign off here, one last question. What is something non-film TV related that you are enjoying right now? Oh, that's interesting. I have really been enjoying the video game Disco Elysium. I played it myself. Now I'm making my roommate play it around me so that I can watch her play it. In terms of political art, it's one of the more interesting that I've ever seen. Okay. And it's it's just a ton of fun as a game, particularly if you like walking around talking to people, which is all that I like to do in games. Mm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it lets you follow up really on any political bent you want, but will make you feel very stupid for whatever you do. Okay. Say it one more time. Disco Elysium. Disco Elysium. It's got a great aesthetic, great characters, and a weird fucking futuristic, pastistic, presentistic. I sound like an idiot. <laughs> world. <laughs> it's okay. I said grotesquity um, multiple times and just said it again. Um, what? It's on the Switch. It's it is on the Switch. Uh, I played it on Steam. My roommate's playing it on the Switch right now. I do think it's I think it's a little easier to play on your computer. Okay, cool. But it's perfectly doable on the Switch, and it's just got a great sense of humor. Great and a mis- and a mystery. You're trying to solve a murder, so I shouldn't leave that out. Okay, fantastic. So if you like talking um, about eat the rich murder mysteries, go play Disco Elysium. Legitimately, do you're caught between a you're caught in the middle of a union dispute, and it's oh. great. Oh. Amazing. And what else is there to say except thank you, Chef um, Skyler? Thank you, Chef. This was Chef. Tortillas. Beast. Oh, that was so good. All right. Broken emotion. <laughs>